All right, we're returning to lesson seven, talking about the role of us as parents as a teacher. The parent as a teacher. Um, are there, Pete, are there any of those left? Any of the lessons left? Where'd Pete go? He left the room. Pete's gone. There might be a few in the back if you don't have a lesson. Maybe not. Okay. Maybe he went to make some. I don't know. No, that's lesson eight, I think, Jason. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we're on parent as a teacher. Uh, We have talked about teaching our kids the fear of God and then the importance of that. Uh, And the fear of God is based in the reality of knowing God and worshiping God and therefore then pleasing God through submission and obedience to Him. Of course, we understand no one can do that rightly without Jesus Christ. There has to be faith in Jesus Christ in order to even please God in any sense. And so no one will know God until they first fear God because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so we teach them to do that. Fear God, to submit and obey the authority that God has placed in their life. And then, of course, we looked at the issue of sin. How do we deal with sin? Because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, to hate evil. So in order to deal with sin, the fear of the Lord, the outworking of the fear of the Lord is to hate our sin. That's a serious matter. And so we talked about that at length last time. And God requires repentance Repentance when we sin, a change of mind about the sin. Sin is not simply an activity. Sin sin is the issue in the heart which produces the activity. And so we have to deal with the heart, the issue of the heart. We have to think differently about sin if we're not going to do sin. And of course, as for a Christian, the Holy Spirit It's his role to bring conviction. It's the Holy Spirit's role, in fact, to bring conviction upon anybody, as the Bible says, right? The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts the world concerning sin. And so uh, when that conviction comes, there has to be repentance or there is no sense in which that sin is taken care of. So they have, we, have to, we have to teach our disciples in our home or our disciples in any relationship how to deal with personal sin and to take it seriously, but also to deal with other sin properly. Deal with the sin of others properly, and that is both not only being a peacemaker, not only being forgiving, not only reaching out in those kinds of ways, but also being the one who confronts. We must confront, which, of course, takes communication. Communication, as we learned last time, is an active process. Listening isn't just sitting there and doing nothing. Listening is an active process. It is engaging ourselves in in the process of, of absorbing what is being said, And uh, so therefore we have to teach by way of example and by way of our words how to listen. The scriptures say in James 1.19, be quick to listen. And so we have to respond in that way 
so that our kids will be learning from us how to listen. And then we talked about speaking, the whole issue of our words and what our words can do, because the Scriptures clearly teach about foolish speech. Foolish speech, the tendencies of foolish speech. Lying would be a foolish speech. Deal strongly with all kinds of lying, every form of it, in whatever way, in your your own families. Any kind of dishonesty at all, you need to kill it early. Remove it, deal with it, because God hates lying. Well, there's rash and sharp words we have to deal with. How we speak, what we say, how we say it. And all those forms go on when it comes to how we speak to one another. So we have to oppose our child's, our children's sinful patterns, whether it be a pattern of communication, whether it be a pattern of laziness, however it is, we have to oppose those and show them why they need to do what God desires. Not only do they need to listen and speak rightly, but they also need to, this morning, they need to love and serve others. Love and serve others. That's E in your outline. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's just an expression, really, of biblical love, the agape love that we hear about so often in Scripture. Agape love is that sacrificial giving to another without any motive of getting something back. It's just sacrificial giving. Love of the unlovable. Love of the unworthy. That's biblical love. Loving others Christ's way as Christ loves us. It's not based upon merit. We don't earn Christ's love. Christ doesn't love us simply because He sees us as good. We don't earn His love, but we are to be His examples of loving even while we are sinners. Even while we are sinners. In fact, Colossians says, we are, or Ephesians says, to be imitators of God. We're to be imitators of God in all those things. And so we are to love in the way that Christ loves us. Showing love and deference to other sinners is a powerful testimony, is it not? How we respond, how we think and respond and reach out and interact with others is a very powerful testimony. Jesus said to his disciples, what? They will know you are Christians, how? By your love. 
It's a massive testimony to the world around us, to our kids, to our friends, by our love. And so when Philippians says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, it's speaking about that kind of love. We are to follow the Christ's example as we reach out to others in love. So, how did Christ love us? How did Christ love us? Okay, while we were still sinners, He died for us. So we could say He wasn't selfish, but rather very generous, right? He was with humility in mind, let each other regard himself. Don't merely look out, the next verse in Philippians 4, for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And then, of course, verse 5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it gives us that grand example of how Christ loved us. Non-selfishly, generously, He showed us that the way of gain was actually to give up your own rights. That strikes across the grain in our minds, doesn't it? I mean, we live in the country of rights. I have my rights. We would even say they are what? God-given, inalienable rights. Did Christ have rights? Did He have inalienable rights? He was God, right? Have this attitude in you which was all in Christ Jesus. Here's His rights. Although He existed in the form of God, Nobody had higher rights than Christ. Nobody had greater rights than Christ. And yet, although he had those rights, he didn't regard that equality with God something to be held to so tightly that he was never going to relinquish that. He emptied himself. Relinquished. So the way of gain was to give up. And therefore, through that, he met our most genuine need at his own expense. Cost him everything so that we could gain everything. So he chose, Christ chose to view the interests of others as more important than his own. What were the interests of God the Father and the plan of redemption for us? Right? For our salvation. And so Christ looked to the interest of us, our salvation, and forwent his own security, protection, self preservation, whatever it took. He died so that the best for us could be accomplished. He was impartial in his sacrificial love. Well, that's agape love. 
When we go to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and we read this nice little chapter about love and we put it on plaques and we set it in our house and we talk about it oftentimes at weddings and things like that and we read these things and we think of all the high ground that that is. Listen, there's no better description of love than right here in Philippians 2. This is agape love. This is the non-selfish giving up of my own expense because it's more important that others receive what they need. So Christ's example is the opposite of the selfish tendency we find bound up in the heart of sinners. Sinners in our homes, sinners in our own heart, sinners in the world. So how... In your own home, when you're dealing with your own kids, how do they respond when someone does something to them? Do they respond in love? How do they respond when they have that little toy that they love and their sibling just yanks it out of their hand? How do they respond? Agape love involves being considerate and showing kindness. That's what it does. It includes that forbearing attitude that we see in Philippians or Ephesians chapter four. And Paul said, I want to entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. This is the idea. This forbearing love. Forbearance is tolerance of others' faults. That's what forbearance is. Tolerance of others' faults. Now, our world certainly doesn't define tolerance that way. Right? Our world defines tolerance by saying, listen, I'll tolerate you if you agree with me. If you're like me, then they say, wow, we're just tolerating one another. This is tolerance. But if you're on an opposite side, especially today, it's even more highlighted. If you're on the opposite side, then tolerance doesn't happen, even though they say they're tolerant. But tolerance is the putting up with others' faults, right? Paul said in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. In fact, the word there in the original language is sometimes translated strife. Don't do things from strife because strife speaks of rivalry. Strife speaks of competition. Strife speaks of some kind of partisanship. It really is the undergirding, uh, what undergirds that is pride. And pride just causes me to push everybody else out of the way and say, I'm the one who needs to be seen. That's what happens in the home. 
So agape love gets rid of that. The expression of agape love pushes that all aside. Agape love excludes being overly critical. There's no sense in which you're loving as Christ loves you when you're overly critical of others. There's no sense in which your children in the home are expressing agape love to one another that you're trying to teach them when they're being overly critical with their siblings. So teach your children that God's standard of love is, is exactly, in many ways, the expression of Christ in Philippians 2, expressed in, in 1 Corinthians 13 in words, right? Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. When you teach your children in the home those things, you are laying groundwork for later life. Later life. I know some of us sitting here this morning who are married probably say, man, I wish my parents would have shown me some of this before I got married. Why? Because marriage is a breeding ground for all of that, isn't it? We have to learn to express that in a marriage relationship. Well, it begins with you teaching that and discipling in the home. Turn to Proverbs 15 as we move down the road in this. Proverbs 15, because we need to also teach our children how to deal with their desires, expectations, and disappointment. Desires, expectations, and disappointments. This is probably, I don't know if it's an overestimation for me to say this, but this is probably the number one issue in every conflict. Doesn't matter what age. Doesn't matter In what context? This is usually the issue in any conflict. Expectations that go unmet. Or that go met in a different way than I wanted them to be met. Proverbs 15 and verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. That's just an axiomatic principle that talks really about controlling your desires. Controlling your desires and your expectations and the disappointments that come when they're not met. Because God allows us, by His grace, to have a whole lot of desires. Individually, personally, they differ. And that's really a blessing, because they they bring a whole lot of variety to our life when we have those desires. Our lives would be pretty, pretty one color if we all just were the same. But we're not. We all have different desires and things like this. And your kids will have different desires. But we, as the teachers in the home, 
have to teach our children what happens when those desires become expectations and then those expectations become disappointments. Because it becomes a problem. Like James chapter 1, he uses the word lust. Lust in James 1 verse 14 through 16. And when it's speaking there, it's referring to desires which have become in you a ruling motive. Your desires now are ruling you in your motive. And any desire that rules you now has been placed at the point in which it's more important to you than the will of God. So how do we do that? How do we recognize this not only in ourselves, but also in those we're discipling, particularly in the home, our children. How do we, how do we diagnose that? How do we know when our desire has moved to the place of a lust or an, or, or an expectation that must be met? How do we know that? Well, here's a couple things that we can know. When you're willing to sin in order to get your desire, and that sin can take all kinds of different routes. You can either be a manipulator and manipulate people to get to a certain place so that you get what you want, circumstances, whatever it is, just like Jacob did in Genesis 27 to manipulate to get the birthright. When you're willing to do that, then your desire has become a lust. It, has, it is now ruling you. Or, or, you can recognize your desire becomes an expectation when you get upset and therefore are willing to sin both in attitude and in action because you didn't get it. Because you didn't get what you want. This is exactly what James chapter 4, verse 1 says. Anytime you have a quarrel, anytime you have an issue where there's quarreling involved at any kind of level, doesn't matter the heat level, when there's a quarrel happening, God says the source of that quarrel is not the circumstance, it is not the situation at hand, it is not the sin that has occurred from someone else to you or otherwise. The problem is you. James 4.1, what's the source of quarrels and fighting among you? Is it not your lusts, your desires? The implication there is your desires have become now expectations. You do not have, you, 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 you want something, you don't get it, so you murder, it says. Pretty harsh words. Why do you fight? Why do you struggle? Why are you pouting? Why do you have this attitude of self-pity? Why are you grumbling? Why are you desiring to retaliate and fight and quarrel? It's not the situation. It's your heart. You have raised your desire into the area of expectation, and that expectation now is ruling you. 
This is very important for us to teach our disciples about because a lot of things can become expectations. Material things can become expectations. What I expect others to say to me, how they respond to me is an expectation. Can be. Pleasure. Pleasure in life. Pleasure in relationship. Can be an expectation. We all know this because we live here in America and the divorce rate is growing ever increasingly over the years, but what's the number one reason why people get divorced these days? Even in the church. Think about it. What's the number one reason? Irreconcilable differences. We're having a fight. We're at loggerheads. We just can't get past it. Why do you think that is? This very reason. We have a desire. It's my expectation. It's not happening. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. It's over. I'm removing it. And we do a lot of things to escape. We do a lot of things to escape. We might not even go that far to get a divorce, but we do a lot of other things within it to escape. We clam up. We don't talk about it. We involve ourselves in some other kind of activity which removes us from it. We distance ourselves in some kind of way, mentally, emotionally, personally, geographically, just so we can deal with it in our own heart, thinking that we're dealing with it rightly and we're dealing with it sinfully. The reality is that anything, even good things, can become idols. Our desires, if they're rooted in selfishness, And if they're left unchecked, then they're going to turn into idolatry. Potential is they'll turn into idolatry. We all have desires, not bad. But what we do with those desires in the relationships with other people, in our own life, will tell us whether they've become idols in our life. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I think it was 1 Corinthians 6, all things are right, possible, but not all things are profitable. Right? As long as they're not sinful, it's possible. Yeah, go ahead. But it may not be profitable. It may not be profitable. For a whole host of reasons, it may not be profitable. So you have to evaluate that. So the reality is in our home and with disciplees, they will, they will be displeased when their desires aren't met. They will. We know that clearly because the Bible says we're sinful and we know that in our own lives because there are times when we allow our desires to become expectations and that now rules us. So we know that's going to happen in the home. The issue is, how are we going to help them deal with it? How are we going to help them deal with their own disappointment in those things? And so we have to help them with 
this great issue in life, this very important issue. Am I willing, this is a question we need to ask, am I willing to trust God with my desires in His sovereign plan for my life? Am I willing to trust God with my desires in His sovereign plan for my life? Will I be content or will I be contentious? So, we need to teach them how to handle these kinds of trials biblically, right? We need to teach them to handle trials biblically. Proverbs 28, verse 26 He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Right there, just in that one little succinct statement from God, he's clearly saying to us that trials are part of life. Part of life. They come to us. Every one of us has them. What Trials for you may not be a trial for someone else. We may have the tendency to look at our own, the issue of somebody else and go, what's the big deal? Come on, get over it. But it's a trial to them. Our trials are different. Your son or daughter or whoever's in your home may come to you and be pretty upset about some kind of thing that in their life is a trial. So they lost a friend or or they didn't make the sports team, or you know things like that. For you, hey, no big deal. Maybe there's some kind of chronic illness in their life that they're having to deal with that you've never had to put up with. So we have to teach them how to handle that. How to handle that. So we have to learn to ask some questions. I had to even employ this recently in, in a conversation I was having. Right, person was pretty upset, having difficulty with certain expectations. So I had to ask these very questions, and these are questions maybe we ought to learn to ask our kids. Right? Okay, here's the situation. The situation from your perspective, maybe you're not seeing it clearly, but it really doesn't matter. It's a trial for you. It's a difficulty for you. Could God have done it differently? In other words, could God have done exactly what you wanted? Or could God have stopped what maybe is happening to you right now? Could that be? Could God have done that? Well, us sitting in this room who understand God in, 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 in at least some way would say, sure, God can do anything. So God could have done that. Of course, person would acknowledge that as I said that. Yes, he could have. The next question is, has he? Could he have stopped it? Yes. Has he stopped it? Well, obviously not because it's not going my way. Right? It's not going the way I desire. It's not going the way I want. I now have this expectation that isn't happening. So he could have he hasn't. The next question is, okay, why not? Why not? What are 
you being thrust into by God's design for you to learn in this situation. Not only about others, but about you. About your own heart. About your own weaknesses, your own failures, your own desires, your own struggles, your own sin. What is God teaching you? We used to have that cliche back in the late 80s, maybe it was mid-80s, what would Jesus do, right? People had bracelets and everything else, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That became a cliche statement, but there's some truth to that, right? How would Jesus respond to this situation? That's a good question. It's a good question to ask because Jesus always followed the will of God. Jesus, in 1 Peter, said he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously, So could God have stopped it? Yes. Has he? No. Why not? Why not? That's that's the question we don't like to get to. The why not? Because now that means I got to look at myself. I got to look at my own heart. I got to look at the situation. I got to evaluate it differently. That means in that moment, I'm not going to get what I want. And that ought to reveal a lot to us about our own heart. That's the place you're trying to get your children. That's the part of the heritage your children are going to pass on to their children. Teaching them that principle, and they teach it to others. Cultivate this reality as you help them biblically think this. Remember God's care. Remember God's faithfulness. Show them how God has been faithful in the past so that they can remember to trust him in the present and in the future. Well, that comes, as we know, by our lessons in the past, by way of precept and by way of example. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Are there any questions up to this point? Any questions? Everybody's got this wired. We're down. Right? Nobody wants to ask a question because they might, somebody might look at them and say, gosh, I got it down. Why doesn't that person? All right. Next, we need to teach them about stewardship. Stewardship. Of all that God gives doesn't matter what it is. We're not just talking about money. We're talking about all that God gives us. This is a stewardship issue. Proverbs 21, 20. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. This is just a simple idea of stewardship, taking care of the very things that God has provided for you. And it doesn't mean simply material blessings. That means all things that God has provided. And therefore, we have to teach our children to be good stewards of their time. In fact, Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So, what happens? He begs during the harvest and has nothing. 
wasn't a wise steward of his time. Time management is a massive thing. Procrastination. Leaving it till tomorrow. Some of the worst words you could ever convince yourself of. Do the hard things first. Why? Because once time is gone, gone. Gone. Never get it back. None of us have a savings account of time. Once it's gone, it's gone. We all know that. I mean, this isn't new for us, and yet this is a reminder for us of our own stewardship. Right? Teach us, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. To number our days. In fact, it's kind of a funny, uh, that, that psalm is, is spoken in my extended family often. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because it's spoken of by my father, who's 83, going to be 84 this year. Psalm 90, verse, he quotes verse 10 often, right? As for the days of your life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. And he stops right there oftentimes. Dad I said, Dad, that's always great, Dad. Certainly we ought to think about that and, and thank God for, for every breath we have even to the ripe old age that you are. I said, but don't forget about the other part of that passage. I said, because it's not about being strong in your late years. I said, notice what it says following that. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow and soon is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. He said, Dad, listen, it's not simply about just growing old and now you're 83. I said, it's about (coughs) redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. And this is something we have to continually teach before us to number our days, to redeem the time. Don't waste opportunities. I love that that, 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 that song written by Moses. Yeah. Live a long time. Long time. Yeah. Redeem the time. We don't know. We don't know when it's going to be done. We don't know that. Today's it. The day my father-in-law passed away over two months ago, or yeah, almost two months ago now, uh, he said, man, what a great day. This is such a great day. I feel so good today. 30 minutes later, he was dead. Don't waste the moments. Don't waste the moments. You don't get them back. Don't procrastinate. Idle time is a problem, with, particularly with kids. I mean, we struggle with idle time, but idle time can be particularly troublesome with kids because it, it, it helps to promote a lack of self-control, right? 
if if your kids don't have anything to occupy their moments, then they start to occupy them with other things. You start to bug each other, irritate one another, exercise their sinfulness in ways they shouldn't do that. They might even struggle with your own authority over them if they're allowed to have too much time. So giving them structure in that area helps them to understand they're under an authority. They're not to waste their time. So teach them to develop good work habits because the tendency is to go towards laziness. Part of the reason it's difficult for our children when it comes to time is simply because we have a hard time with it. We've developed our own bad habits. We've developed our own procrastinations, and we're okay with that. We're okay with that. I'm always surprised, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes here in any kind of personal way, but I'm always surprised with, with someone who knows what time something starts or whatever, but is continuously late. And yet they're late around the same time. They show up late at the same late time. So they're consistently late at the same lateness. But they can't seem to make it when it actually starts. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's just a procrastination of time. And they've convinced themselves that it's not them. And the reality is it is them. Look at your own life. Look at your own habits. Look at what you do, what you allow to rule, and see if that works. Jose. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that we pray is to not get distracted when we do the Bible study. You know, give us the strength to focus. That's a good prayer. Good way to handle it, right? And, and, and listen, when we pray, right, we're saying to God, I'm dependent upon you to help me in this. And then God gives us opportunities in order to exercise that growth, and sometimes we just begrudgingly don't accept that from God, right? People say all the time, I don't want to pray for patience because I know God's going to give me opportunities to be patient, right? So we really don't want help. We know we need to, but we don't really want it because we're comfortable in our own little sinful bubble that we've created. So don't do that. So along with being good stewards of time, we have to teach our children also to be good stewards of their abilities, their bodies. That just simply means, look, what goes along with time is you don't need to be a couch potato just sitting there doing nothing. You get up, do some things. And also be a good steward of the material blessings that God has given us. That, that's more than just money. That's the things that you've given them over time in their life. The toys that you've given them, the, the bicycles, all those kinds of things. 
my grandkids are with us this week, and I went out the other day and got them some sleds so they could sled in our backyard on the snow. And I said to them, when I gave them to them, listen, when you're not sledding, your, your sleds need to be up here on the porch. Why? Because they're not just to be laying out doing whatever. I want them to be good stewards of what they've been given so that they're not taken or they're not lost or they're not ruined through whatever elements are out there. And they've done a good job at it. They've done that. Even the other day, I didn't have to tell them. They just brought them up on the front porch. I asked them, where are your sleds? They said, on the front porch. So they get it. They can learn. They can learn to do that. They just need to know what's expected of them by God for the authority that's placed over them. So children need to learn not to misuse or neglect anything that God's given them. Anything. And that's material goods and non-material things. And then you'll need to instill in them, in this, a good work ethic. A good work ethic. Because work is part of the plan of God for us. It's part of the plan. Young children need to learn to work. Their tendency is going to be to waste time and cultivate this habit in their life of poor work habits and laziness. So, so maybe instill in them these kinds of questions. Ask them these kinds of questions. When do we work? When do we work? What does God say? When is it that we are to be working? Well, God said six days a week you work. One day you rest, six days you work. So it may be helpful for you to establish then a schedule for them whereby they do their activity that you've placed before them, chores, whatever that is, and they have to do it every single day because work is part of life. Work is part of life. Right? Now, so not only when do they work, but then secondly, how? How do we work? Colossians 3.23, we do our work heartily unto the Lord. Heartily unto the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever's in your hand to do, do it with all your might. So we teach them to work diligently, responsibly, and persevering until it's accomplished, until the task is done. We don't go in with a half-done job. We do it all. Now, they may not do it at the level that, that you're hoping to in over time, but you want them to do it all. Accomplish the whole job. So don't, don't put up with half effort. Don't put up with whining and grumbling and complaining because they got to spend more time to do it. That's just an attitude of rebellion. So we teach them when to work, we teach them how to work, and then we teach them why. Why do we work? Well, first of all, because it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.23 clearly tells us that. But also, it's God's way of meeting our needs. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, if you won't work, you won't eat. 
People say, God isn't meeting my needs. Are you working? Because God's primary means of meeting your needs is through you working. But also, not only that, we meet needs of other people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We work with our hands so that we might give. So it's an opportunity to help others. It's an opportunity for us to be productive. To do what God has called us to do in our own lives. All these things are things that we can cultivate and should be cultivating in our own life and thereby teaching our children through precept and through example just what it means. And then lastly, we need to teach principles concerning marriage. Marriage. Our children are going to learn what God requires for husbands and wives as they watch you. They pay attention to you. Because the home is that perfect training ground. It's that perfect place where they can learn self-control. They can learn how how those things can be uh, brought under their own uh, uh, efforts to, to stifle those in their own life, how they can use their own body for sanctification and honor before the Lord. Right? So they're going to help them in the future. It's not just for their time in your house. They're going to remember that when they leave. So you're modeling these things for everyday life. You're teaching them through your precepts and through your example for everyday life. So you can prepare them for life in that way. You can prepare them for the kind of husband and wife that that they should be looking for. Someone who fears God. Someone who submits to authority. Someone who deals personally with their own sins. Somebody who, who knows how to communicate appropriately. Someone who's dealing with their own desires and expectations and disappointments as God would have them. Someone who faces trials in a biblical way. Someone who's a good steward of all that God has given them, who works hard. All of these things you're teaching them. So it's not the job of the not the job of the Sunday school teachers, not the job of pastors at the church to raise your children. Right? It's your job. So do your children see you read the Bible? Do they see you memorize the Bible? Do you see you agonize and over your sin because of what the Bible has said, convicting in your life? When issues come up, do they hear you answer with God's word or with your own opinions? So there's a whole lot of things you need to study in there. A lot of things you need to look at. You're going to be in the right place. God's merciful. God's merciful. He he gives us a lot of grace. Thankfully. Thankfully.